Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee. A few weeks ago, I completely out of the blue probably surprised my son by texting him and saying, hey Luke, uh, could I borrow the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy DVDs? I don't know, maybe they're yours, maybe they're mine, but I know you have them. Could I borrow those? Um, to kind of let you know how odd that is, is I'm not really a Lord of the Rings geek of any kind. I, I never read the books. I did see the movies, um, saw all three of them when they were out in 2001, 2002, and 2003, and I thought they were really, really good. I do think Gladiator in 2000 was better, but let's just be said. Um, but Frodo, that was a dude that caught my attention. I mean, here is this little guy, literally, where I'm like, dude, you have all my props. And then Sam. Who doesn't want a Sam in their life, right? I mean, just what a, a dude he is. So a few weeks ago then, I watched DVD number one and uh, The Lord of the Ring and Fellowship of the Ring and enjoyed that. And then last Sunday evening, uh, all three hours to watch number two in The Two Towers. And... Uh, while I was watching uh, number two, I just am sitting there and watching, and I'm like, this is interesting. Here is this little hobbit dude, this no name from the Shire, who, uh, well, I think we could say is uniquely positioned, who is uniquely burdened, who um, is uniquely on the run, and... Uh, his life is literally being chased down. And you just feel for the dude. And it's like, you just get to the end of DVD number two and you're like, there's no hope, man. There's no hope for you. And so then on Monday, I open 1 Samuel 21 in the first five verses of chapter 22. And I'm like, oh my word. Before there was a Frodo, there was David. And this whole chapter and text is just like, here is this young man, uniquely positioned, uniquely on the run, and uniquely life is just chasing him down. And uh, I go, last night I watched the movie, today I'm in the text of scripture, and I'm just going to say, uh, as the older I get, the more I, the more I think all events have meaning, and uh, God, in His timing, pulled off watching those videos. And so we're in First Samuel 21. Open there, would you please? And like Frodo, David's been on the run. He's been on the run for doing nothing of his own being. In fact, in 1 Samuel 20, it's, by the way, so grateful for Pastor Eric and Pastor Chris just taking us these last couple weeks through these texts. Absolutely. And in verse 1 of chapter 20, David asked Jonathan, what have I done? What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father saw that he seeks my life? And today we find him on the run. We find him on the run. In fact, I'm going to kind of say it this way. This text um, is like David is in five cities in, we'll say, three countries. Kind of just term it that way. 
He is on the run all over this place. And, and in this, uh, you read through this and I, <laughs> straight on the table. So I set all this up, uh, this sermon series up and with this text and I'm, I'm kind of with this text and getting in this stage where it's like, how do you preach on this stuff? Because I mean, it's just like stuff's moving and, 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 and at times bizarre as some is in today. And yet I'll tell you, just diving into it, you get through this text and you kind of go, why? Why all the drama? Like it doesn't wrap it up. It's kind of like the end of the Twin Towers of DVD 2. It's not wrapped up. And you're kind of left hanging. Why all of this stuff? And so we're going to kind of embrace it. So here's the deal. First of all, uh, we're going to hear the text and we're going to feel it. And, and if you're kind of like, as we move through this, it's like, is he just talking this text out as we're going along? Yes. Um, I, I am totally, trust me, that is not code for he didn't do his sermon prep. I did. But I think in this, you just got to flow through this. And, and I think even by the time we get to the end, there might even be more questions in your head than answers. And if that's the case and it seems a bit chaotic, then I nailed the text <laughs> because it's chaos in here. And uh, we're going to first hear it and feel it. And then we're going to kind of wrap it up at the end. And I'm going to ask, so what's up with all this seemingly meaningless drama? God, uh, guide our thoughts. Direct our ways. Teach us, I pray. Amen. Well, the first place we go to is Nob. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss thing. Oh, I guess you can't say that nowadays, but sounds like a Dr. Seuss thing, doesn't it? Here we go. Chapter 21. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Remember, uh, as Chris had taken us through last week, you get to the end of chapter 20, and uh, Jonathan has given David the sign that he's got to hightail it out of town. So what do you do when you're on the run, when someone's after your life? I've never had that experience, uh, where literally someone's after my life. Where do you go? What do you do? Well, David goes to Nob to see Ahimelech, the priest. There's a question, of, why there? Was it just a convenient place? Did they have like a holiday in there? Was there, What was the deal there going on? Hold that thought. We'll answer that in just a minute. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, that's an interesting Way to pull that all together, David. Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, now then, uh, what do you have on hand? G give me, please, uh, five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the, the priest answered, David, I, I have no common bread on hand, but there is only the holy bread, the, kind of the holy bread related to uh, the offering unto the Lord. And if the young men ha have kept themselves from women, and if David answered the priest, and he said, truly, women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on expedition, and the vessels of the young men are holy, uh, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessel be holy. And so the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread, and the day it is taken, well, that's just like a, who cares what they ate? 
Uh, we could spend a lot of time on this, but I'm so not going to spend a lot of time on this because I think it's setting some things. And by the way, I will note this. Jesus makes reference to this incident in the New Testament uh, related to the Pharisees and kind of saying, uh, in my own words, stop the legalism. Uh, you see, the bread that was at this time was uh, for offering unto the Lord and the kind of, uh, if you will, let's kind of put it in modern day uh, reality. It was kind of like communion bread and it wasn't supposed to be eaten by anyone. As in, if there was ones left over, it was to be eaten only by the priests. And so David coming in and asking for this, this was not supposed to be done in that. And yet the priest in it, he, he does that. I'm just going to say the, what happened and that's what happened. Then verse 7, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was not Doug, but Doeg, uh, the Edomite, uh, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Uh, by the way, in my Bible, I literally put kind of parentheses around that verse 7, because as we'll read here in a second, through the text, there you go, why is he mentioned? Why is Doeg mentioned? We have two questions on the table here, kind of like, why is David in Nob, and, and who is this Doeg guy? Um, uh, more of that will come next week, but let me make reference ahead a little bit, and I don't always do that, because I like to keep us in the mode of what's happening at the moment, and I'll just make reference to a couple verses in chapter 22. In verses 9 and 10, it says that Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for David. It says that again in verse 6 and 13. Saul says to Ahimelech, you inquired of the Lord for David. Then verse 15, Ahimelech says to Saul, yeah, that I inquired of the Lord for David. Why did David go to Nob? Because Ahimelech, the priest, was there. So why did he go? Because David wanted to inquire of the Lord. Hey, friends, this is not about a pat on the back of David, but it is understanding and seeing and observing what was it about David that made David a special dude? And this is one of them. When David's life is being chased down, where does he go? He goes to the guy that is going to, that David knows, is going to inquire of the Lord. In other words, David is going to the Lord when the heat's on. When the heat is on in life, David is going to the Lord. By the way, why is Doeg in it? Because next week in chapter 22, he'll be one of them making mention of this. David inquires of the Lord when the heat is on. When life is chasing David down, what does David do? Answer. He seeks the Lord. That's why David went to Nob. He could have sought out his dad. He could have sought out his mom. Could have sought out his brothers. He could have sought out the wisdom of Facebook. Could have sought out Dr. Phil or the DSM-5. He could have taken the injustices that are being lashed out of him, taken them to an attorney. Could have called a congressman. He could have held a rally. He could have charged the palace. He could have gone postal. But David goes to a, the person that he knows is going to inquire of the Lord for him. And I can't get past the powerful truth of that for us. 
God's people. Where do you go when the heat is on? Add this. I think likely at this stage, David is now 27 or 28 years old. If that's the case, then that means that it's been some eight to 13 years now since David back with Samuel when Samuel said, David, you. So if David was 15, it's been about 13 years. If David was 20, it's been about eight years. Think about that. Let's round it off. I think it's nearly been a decade of time since Samuel said, David, you. A decade. A decade. And where's he at? How's his career going? I mean, how's the, the, the plan fitting together and planning out his career moves with things? I mean, this is the point in time where he should be with his wife and having children in a white picket fence. If it was some 13 years ago, let's see, 13 years ago, what happened 13 years ago? Oh, 13 years ago, this church launched on this Sunday, by the way. And I go back and I'm just sitting in my office and I'm thinking, oh my word, what God has done. Never in my dreams. And then I go to David. And it's been a long time. And David's had some pretty cool moments, like the whole Goliath moment. That was cool, right? Totally cool. The Jonathan David thing, man, that's like a Frodo Sam deal going on. David here in this text is on the run for his life. And at what point in time do you go, God, where are you? I think of Abraham and Sarah. God told elderly Abraham, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a, have a child come through you to start a nation thing. Cool. Sarah, we're going to have a child. Woo! And then it's three years. And then it's five years. And then it's eight years. And it's 13 years. And then it's 20 years. And then it's 24 years. And you're like, seriously, friends, at what point in time do you go, God, I'm having a really hard time believing you? Like you said a child and Lord, like, um, never in my life did I ever think we would be waiting 25 years I, I got to tell you, I think year three, I'd be having a bad attitude with the Lord if I could last that long. I think of Joseph sold by his brothers. Oh, there's a dysfunctional family. Years in prison, nothing of his own doing. At what point in time is Joseph like, you know what, this isn't working too well, <laughs> this whole life thing. Job, 
His whole family and empire is destroyed. And Job, Job knows, I don't, under, I don't think Job knew anything of what took place in Job chapter one, telling the whole scene behind the whole thing. And then I think of Noah, building an ark for some hundred years, truly. <laughs> at, at what year are you bored? At what year are you wondering this project? <laughs> And then we learn in the New Testament that even in his proclamations isn't getting response. What year do you kind of go, you know what, this whole God thing, like, God, do you even know what you're doing? But in it all, David wants to seek the Lord out. How cool is that? David wants to connect with someone who's going to take him to the Lord. That and us, right? That and us. Oh, by the way, if you're at that point where you're kind of like, yeah, but you know, Doug, the end of the story is, it all works out well for David. You know, the end of the story is for Abraham and Sarah. They do have a kid. Well, it, it works out for Job. It's like twofold whole thing. You know, Joseph becomes prime minister and, and the whole uh, Noah thing. You know, that, that's really all cool. Hey, friends, uh, hear me on this. It's all going to turn out well to Noah in year 48. It's going to be a hard sell. When Joseph is in prison, and it's like, Joseph, it's all going to turn out well. Hard, hard receiving that. When you are living for the promise of a child, and it's been year 22, it's all going to turn out well, man. Hey, Job's friends were most effective when they were with him and silent. Weep with those who weep. And this is a moment, if I can even be a bit harsh to some of my commentary friends, when they take this text and they bring in the end of the story, removes the weight of the text of the time. Maybe you're in a place right now where you just feel like life is chasing you down. And you got lips above water and you're taking water in. Maybe you're just at a place of life where life just is like a routine to where it's like, Lord, frankly, it's been diapers in the morning and diapers in the afternoon and diapers in the evening and my life right now feels kind of meaningless. I think David is a help to us here. What did David do? Lord, I'm here before you. Let's keep reading verse eight. And then David said to Ahimelech, then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword or my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. That's interesting. Let me just pause there for a second. No, let me keep going. I'll pick it up here in a sec. Verse 9, and the priest said, the sword of Goliath the Philistine whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like it. Uh, give it to me. He's not being a bratty 
guy in his conversation with that. He's just saying, I'll take it. Um, can you imagine that? It's been some years since the whole David and Goliath thing, and then you pick up the sword again. That's got to bring back some memories. You got to feel his friends, what's going on. So here, here's David. He has Goliath's sword in hand. They've got some food in their belly, and, and, and they're going to go. So where would you go next? I got an idea with Goliath's sword in hand. Let's go to Goliath's hometown. So they go to Gath, verse 10. And David rose and fled. Understand, he's not on a picnic. He's not on a hike through the mountains. He's being chased down. And he fled that day from Saul, went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? That's an interesting statement. David isn't the king of the land, but they're like, isn't this the king of the land? They're in Gath, they're in Philistine territory. They're like in another country, if I can kind of say it that way. And the servants of Achish said, is this not David the king of the land? And did they not sing to one another of him in the dances? They remember this. They sing, Saul is, I wish I could sing it, but I can't. Saul has struck down his thousands and David is ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and he was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. Uh, what was he afraid of? The text doesn't tell us. I want to know, but the text doesn't tell us. We can make some uh, uh, good thoughts on it, but I'm just going to stay with the text today. It doesn't tell us, but David is afraid. Verse 13, so he changed, by the way, it is not never be afraid. It is fear does not drive us. It is not never feel the emotion of fear biblically. It is that fear does not end up driving us. David is afraid here, verse 13. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane. I've read through this a number of times this week, to say the least. And why did David do this? There's a variety of thoughts on it, but honestly, I don't think any of them we know for sure. David, David goes berserk, and he made marks on the doors of the gate. Whatever he's doing, spittles running down his beard. The dude's going whack. And then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? I don't want a madman. Verse 15, do I lack madmen that, uh, that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in his press? Tells you a lot about what's going on in Philistine territory. Shall this, follow, shall this fellow come into my house? And then he leaves. <laughs> this is one of these times where I want to try and explain it, but I can't explain it without good accuracy because the text doesn't want to explain it. And it's just, it leaves it, and I think that's on purpose. It's helping us to realize Dave is just in this place where it's like life is just like coming and moving and going and flying. And, and by the way, this, all his words and what he's doing, it was David being deceptive when he said that the king set him, uh, in, back in verse two, the king has charged me with this matter and said to me, and that's why I'm here. Wait a second, David, are you lying, David? Are you being deceived? And then David here in this text here, you're acting like you're insane. What is going on with you, man? What is going on? Hey, comment. It is intriguing to me 
that there is no moral commentary on David's actions here. It is not saying David was lying and it was wrong. It is not saying David shouldn't have done this to manipulate. So what should we come to a conclusion with? Hey, friends, oftentimes you see in the Old Testament, the text doesn't address the moral commentary to it, which is fascinating. You would think that it would. But can I do this? It's telling us a situation. David did it. Was he wrong? I don't know. The Lord will take care of that. Are we supposed to be people that speak truth? Are we supposed to be people that are not deceiving and manipulating others? Yes. Was David wrong here? Could be. I'm gonna leave that in the Lord's hands. But can I say this? When I see all of this going on, it does have a tendency for us to want to make judgments on David when then all of a sudden I'm back in Matthew chapter seven and I'm thinking, wait a second. Judge not lest you be judged. With the measure upon which you judge, you will be judged. Get the log out of your own eye. And I think there are times in texts of scripture like this, I want to know some answers. Was David lying here? Was David deceiving here? And I want to know those, and I want to have those preached out for my kids to hear it. But in the text of it all, I'll say this. I'm not sure what's going on with David here, but I do know this. We're to be people that are truth speakers, truth and love. And we're to be people that are not manipulators, right? To Gath. Next, to a cave. 22, verse 1, 2. David departed from there and escaped. Still in a bad predicament. And he came to the cave. That sounds like a beautiful place to live. Probably had plumbing and TV and couch and heater, came to the cave of Adullam, and when his brothers and all his fathers heard it, they went down there to him, and everyone was in distress, and everyone who was, everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, this is a big cave, uh, gathered to him, and he became a commander over them, and, and there were with him about 400 men. There's some cool things taking place in there as his family's coming to, to reside there. I wonder what that dynamic was like. Was it kind of like, holy cow, brothers, you are, brother, you are totally ruined my life. Was it uh, they're supporting him? We don't know. Text doesn't tell us. But the family gathers there, and then there's this uh, island of misfits, cave of misfits, people, and uh, who all cluster together with David. M- might I just toss this out as a thought. Who else was someone that I can think of in scripture that gathered together like misfits? Yeah, in the New Testament, yeah. Jesus, the son of David. Uh, Here David is gathering together these misfits and and he's building this little army thing going on. That's, That's all we know. To Nob, to Gath, to a cave, to Moab. Moab, it's east of the Dead Sea. You can look on the map in the back of your Bible. It's modern-day state of Jordan. Moab, who else came from Moab? Well, that's right, David's great-grandmother, Ruth, the Moabite. That's interesting. And David went from there to Mespah of Moab, verse 3, 
And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother stay with you. Brothers aren't mentioned there. Maybe they were there. Maybe they weren't. Maybe he's getting them settled in family territory. Don't know, but look at this. Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. Had someone come after the first service and just make a comment to me. He said, you know, I've been uh, in a life transition now for six, eight months and I'm still waiting to learn what the Lord's doing in all of this. Comment on that here in a bit. David was wondering what the Lord's doing as well. He continually through all of this is seeking out what the Lord will, will, will have for him in this. Verse four, and he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And then he goes to the forest. Kind of sounds like Robin Hood. Kind of sounds like Middle Earth. Then the prophet God said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth, just shy of Mount Modor or whatever. What do you do with a text like this? I actually think there's a number of things you can do, but I'm just gonna share what the Lord's pressed into me on. Do you ever feel like life is filled with just like a boatload of random? Do you ever feel like life just has pieces to it that you just can't put them together, they just don't fit? Maybe sometimes you just feel like you're in a place to where it just all seems meaningless. I mean, I know that's kind of feeling like a downer, but the text is in this place where this is heavy. This is a heavy place that David is living in. I think you and I can relate to maybe not being chased down to be killed, but life chasing us down. This last year has been bizarre, has it not? I can relate to David in the Psalms talking of this events. He, he uses words like he feels like he's been trampled on. I think at times we can even relate to Solomon's words, David's son. When he says, meaningless, meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything it seems Meaningless. He says, I have seen things that are done under the sun and all of them are meaningless, just a chasing after the wind. Hey, maybe life is really sweet for you right now, but maybe for you life is kind of in that place where it's like, man, the pieces don't fit right now. Now, I can't fully relate to David, but I can partially relate to David. Maybe life just feels like it's on a, Rewind, repeat, rewind, repeat. Hey, Doug, what'd you do this week? Well, kind of normal. My Monday was routine of starting out my commentary reading for the 
sermon and did some parenting class prep for Thursday, you know, sent some emails. Always behind on emails, I'm terrible with that. Had uh, two extended lunches with two pastors from here in Indianapolis. That was really cool. Prep for the elder meeting. Had a couple of just some really sweet extended prayer times. Sent some more emails. Did some more sermon prep. No small group this week. I ran a few times. Shuffled few times this week. We, we watched a few Fringe episodes. Anybody else a Fringe fan? You don't, half of you don't even know what it is. I put gas in the car. I hung a couple ho- coat hangers in our house. Our water heater's kind of on the fritz, and so I had to get a new water heater. It's still in the garage. We'll, we'll get there. Yesterday morning, I was in the office finishing up, getting ready for today and afternoon. I kind of was able to do a little bit of hobby interest thing I enjoy doing. And I preached today. Tonight we watch the grandkids and so our other kids can go to student ministries and rewind repeat. And you may say, yeah, but Doug, your your job, I mean, man, your job is has great meaning to it. Not yeah, it does. And I am so grateful and I am so thankful that I get paid to be able to do this here. And yet, in my world at the same time, it's rewind, repeat, rewind, repeat. And there's just times where you just kind of go, is this making a difference? And it's the same for you, right? Four statements about our God, I think, for out of this text. And then a sentence. Friend, our God is in control. Our God is in control. Because our God is in control, our lives are never out of his control. David, with each of these, I'm pulling what David writes in Psalm 52 or Psalm 56 because David's writing in those psalms related to exactly what's going on here. And in that, related to this idea of our God is in control, Psalm 52, verses 8 through 9, David says, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. And I've sat on that statement, and if Dave, as David is reflecting on this time of what's going on, he, he's not like, man, that was a hopeless time. He actually has this like, God, you did that. God, if I could say, you allowed that, God. You are in control of this insanity. <laughs> Even when I go insane. <laughs> you are in control. Friend, our God is in control. Second, our God is not in a hurry, and I don't like that. Because our God is not in a hurry, our timetable is not God's timetable. David should have been king by now. Come on. Let's take a vote. David should have been king by now. All in favor. Yeah, I, yeah, okay, good. And he's not. In fact, it's like he's not even close. He says in Psalm 52, 9, I will wait for your name, for it is good. Man, it's hard to wait. 
Our God is in control. Our God is not in a hurry. Third, our God is about the process. Because our God is about the process, not just the end result, our circumstances have meaning. You know, we Americans, we're very about the end result people. We adore and idolize the end result of things. The process is kind of the annoying part that just gets us to where we want to get to. And yet, I think clearly God is in this whole thing. If God wanted David in the seat, he could have done it years earlier. And yet, for some reason, God in this whole of it, even if we can't fully explain it right now, and and don't go, well, but he does, because in it, David's hurting. He's feeling trampled on. And yet he knows that God is in it. Psalm 56, 8, you have kept count of my tossings. Listen to this. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Think about that. Think about oh, the tears of the heartache of all these little events going on. God's not like, ah, pfft, those are annoying. I don't really care about those. I just want to know that he's king. No, no. God is actually like, I take those tears. I take every one of them and I put them in a bottle. That sounds like a song. Put them in a bottle. Oh, by the way, not only that, I'm writing them in my book. The whole process of what goes on, I I might even say it this way, the process is more important than the end result. God is in the process. Fourth, our Savior understands. Why do I say that? Matthew 8, 20. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of David has nowhere to lay his head like David here in chapter 21. Think about that. Colossians chapter 1, the agent of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, creates all things. And then he puts boots on the ground in the incarnate second person of the Trinity. And he has nowhere to lay his head. And he's good with that. You may say, but he owns it all. No, friends, he had nowhere to lay his head. He was homeless. Our Savior understands. Because our Savior understands, we have hope and help. Through this text of chapter 125, and even continuing on in this, even in the low times for David, there is clearly something in David's heart where David keeps coming to the Lord, and in not perfect, but David keeps coming to the Lord in it and seeking out the Lord because he knows that his Lord is his helper. So let me pull all this together. I'm just gonna say for me this week out of this text, here's the sentence. There is never a meaningless moment in life. There is never a meaningless moment in life. Never. 
There is not a moment that is irrelevant. There is not an occasion that has no meaning. There is not a set of circumstances that go nowhere. Our God is in control. He is not in a hurry. He is about the process. And our God, our Savior, understands. And just like David in all of this, that you walk away and you go, is this just all meaningless? No. Every moment has meaning. Doug, what was the meaning of it? How about this? I don't know right now. That's one of the hardest places to be. Like, I don't know what God's doing right now. But know this, God's doing something. And God is at work somehow. And we cling to that fact. We want to know the why and the how. God wants us to know the who. And so God, I pray you would help us to be that. To be a people increasingly who lean into you. Lord, I pray for the person in the room right now who just feels like their life is maybe in a a, a land of chaos. They feel like Frodo. They feel like David. God, I would just pray for your sweet spirit of love and truth and the work of the spirit to come alongside them and point them to you. God, we just are a culture of, it's all about the end result, it's all about the end result. And yet the process is so important, that's where the discipleship happens, that's where the endurance takes place, that's where the seeing you at work happens. Even when we don't know why, even when we don't know when it's gonna stop, even when we don't know when it's gonna get to the point of what you have before God, even if we don't see what that point is, I pray that we would be people who are increasingly faithful to you in it. And we can say that and we can declare it even when we have tears coming down, hurts all over, and our thinking struggling because you are in control and you're not in a hurry and you're about the process and we have a Savior who understands what it is to live among. Father, I pray for the person in this room this morning who maybe doesn't actually have a relationship with you through Christ. I pray that they would uh, uh, seek someone out and, and lean into this fact of who are you and how can I know for sure that I know that I know that I know that I'm redeemed in Christ and in your hands. Draw them to yourself. Lord, help us this week. Eyes on you, knees before you. God, we are yours. We want to do your will. In Christ's name, amen.